Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode from the archives. At the point at which this episode is released, I'm on expedition in Alaska with Tommy Caldwell, Alex Honnold and Renan Ozturk, directing a film for National Geographic. I didn't want to have to take a break from weekly releases, so we thought we'd share some of my favourite episodes from early on in the life of the podcast that may or may not have been heard by those of you who joined the party late. This episode was originally released in October 2019, and it features Erling Karger. I can't remember how Erling describes himself, but my overarching memory of him was as a modern-day philosopher. He's an accomplished adventurer, businessman and intellectual, but it's his views on walking, silence and the philosophy of travel that kept me so enthralled. This is actually one of the only episodes of the podcast that I've personally returned to more than once, and it makes me think just as much every time. Okay, over to Erling Karger. sitting down with me in a very busy schedule um if you could it would be great to just talk a little bit about um your background who you are and for those who don't know where you come from um and what you do yeah my name is Arlen Kagge I'm from Norway I grew up in uh, Oslo I'm 56 years old uh three kids three daughters and um from a young age, I want to explore, but I don't think that's so unique because I think everybody's born an explore, explorer. So the only difference maybe from me and most of the people is that that spirit was not diminished through school and family life, but it increased. Okay. And what do you mean everyone's born an explorer? I mean, in the sense that I can't talk on behalf of 7.2 billion people, but it's uh, in, in general... Um, if you look at kids, they want to climb before they can walk. They are wondering what's hidden behind the exit door. Uh, and as soon as they leave the house, they would like to find out what's beyond the horizon. So I think this is uh, something we have, something we're born with. And what was, what were your first explorations then? Mm, must be, you know. Uh, uh, obviously I get out of my mother's stomach but it's uh, <laughs> um, you know the first walks you know walking to kindergarten making a detour yeah I think that's must be it and when did you realize it was exploring mm, I can't I, I don't know I think that's something you know was not expressed in words before a later stage, but I think, you know, you kind of understand it very early in life that you explore. Yeah. It's, I, it's interesting for me because having done all of the stuff I'm supposed to do with reading about your life and what you've done, you know, you became a lawyer. So with what you've done to date and the views that you have now and the way that you write now, what were you like as a person when you decided to become a lawyer? Mm, I think in general, kind of same person. I think it's, I enjoyed studying law and also enjoyed working as a lawyer. Um, I, you know, I couldn't do it for, I, I could have done it for the rest of my life, but it, that would not be for me because, um, uh, as I said, we're born explorers, but we're not born lawyers. So it's uh, um, uh, it was good for a while, but you know my lifestyle uh, and my different desires and ambitions, you know, makes it difficult to have a fixed day job and uh, even more difficult to charge hours. 
So, um, so, but you know, it's what it was. You know, it was a an adventure to study law. So it's you know, it, you learn a lot about society, and you learn that most stories have at least two sides or more. So I think you know, it for me it was good. Okay, and when you, at what point did you think, okay, this isn't for me anymore? I need to you know, go on a big expedition or had you been on many big trips before you studied to become a lawyer? Yeah, yeah. I did some expeditions before I studied and I did some while I was studying. And um, yes, it has always been integrated in my life. What sort of trips were you doing? Ooh, when I was 20, I sailed across the Atlantic with some friends. When I was 21, I sailed back again. When I was uh, 23, I sailed from New York to uh, down um, through Panama Canal and Galapagos and down to southern part of Chile. And then into the next year, we sailed down to Antarctica in 87 and around Cape Horn and uh, went back again. And then, you know, many smaller trips and mini expeditions in between. And then... Uh, Berge Avsland, and I went to the North Pole, and then the South Pole, and then Mount Everest, and uh, then some urban exploration afterwards, and then, you know, many expeditions, or, you know, trips, journeys, voyages, I can't remember just right away. Mm. Can we talk a little bit about the um, the sailing? Mm-hmm. Where did that come from, and the desire to... I think you know. Uh, I think everybody has a desire to sail the oceans uh, somehow. But it's. Uh, I grew up in a home uh, without a car, without TV. Uh, my father said it was diseases for on society and those things, and um, and you know I didn't understand it at the time. But today, fifty years later, I understand kind of that he was right. Um, uh, but he was into sailing, so we were sailing in the summer. We had a boat, 22-foot boat, sailing boat, that my two brothers and mother and father went sailing all summer. So and uh, late he, later he bought a 27-footer, and uh, so went sailing. And what was it that made you and your friends decide that that particular trip was the one for you? Mm, I had this friend called uh, Hauk that I s- cross-country skied a lot with and since I was seven, eight years old. Um, we're still kind of close and we were dreaming about sailing the world. So that's what we talked about when we were cross-country skiing. And uh, when we were 20, at least we sailed back and forth the Atlantic. That was at least something. And what did that do to you as a person? You know, oh, this is this. I was born in '63, and this was in '83 and '84. So it's hard to tell, but obviously we are part of all that we have met, as it says in a poem by uh, Tennyson. So um, um, it uh, did. Um, you know, it it was it shaped my life, uh, but today I can't really remember in uh, <laughs> what sense but you know to be away for eight months with friends sailing you know experience the oceans nature uh, learning how to interpret it the weather the wind uh, different temperatures uh, the clouds was, you know the currents very interesting and at the same time of course Partying, meeting people, uh, you know, it's living kind of crazy life. Um, was very, very valuable. And this was before you decided to become a lawyer? Um, this Atlantic crossings were before I started to decide to become a lawyer, yes. And then whilst you were training and whilst you were practicing law, how were you getting that kind of fix of adventure or exploration? Uh, while I studied law, I went to the Antarctic and was away for 10, we- ten months from school uh, and did stuff on Spitsbergen 
and some other you know travels so um uh, I was not as much at law school as I was supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you um, merged the worlds very well. So when did the the North Pole trip came first, right, of the three? Yeah. And how did that come about? That came about... Um, um, I had met this guy called Geir Randby, who's a Norwegian explorer, and uh, he wanted to walk to the North Pole. And he asked me if I want to join him. I said yes. And then this now we talk about maybe eighties, late eighty seven, early eighty eight. And then um, uh, he met Berger Olsland, today is a famous explorer. At that time, uh, I was about to say it was a nobody, but that was taken too far. But it's uh, at least it was not a great. It didn't have you know he had crossed Greenland and did some impressive stuff. Um, but today, of course, is the greatest polar explorer around, uh, at least as far as I can tell. But at that time, so they met, and he also wanted to walk to the North Pole. So then we agreed to, you know, try together. So that was the beginning. And can you talk to me about what that trip was like as, I guess, your first big polar expedition? Mm. I think it's, I think it was a very important expedition for us, obviously, but I also think it was an important expedition for many others because what we found out in the late 80s was that uh, we had to make almost all the gear ourselves because it was not possible to buy anything gear that you know you could use in the polar regions. And we had to design the sledges. We had to, you know, make the, make the food for for this single purpose, and the tent and the sleeping bags and everything and the boots. Everything we had to make ourselves together with, you know, other people, specialists in different areas. So I think you know, it's 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 polar expeditions kind of changed, uh, especially in Norway. Uh, in England, we're a bit slower. Uh, I think in Norway, this to prepare is has very high um, status. Uh, amateurism, which is kind of a romantic, you know, uh, ideal in England, uh, doesn't exist in Norway. Uh, either you succeed or you fail. So heroic failure is not a part of our language. So um, we uh, prepare really well. And that's something also Amundsen wrote, that uh, uh, if you are well prepared, you will most likely succeed. And people say that you're at good luck. And if you're ill-prepared, you most likely fail. And people say you have unlucky, you were unlucky, unfortunate. And, uh, and so this kind of goes deep into the Norwegian attitude, that uh, you need to be well prepared. And... Uh, and um, that's what we were. And then later expeditions in Norway, they could kind of build on our experiences and, of course, be even better prepared. But I think it in, in Norwegian culture, polar, you know, expedition or expedition culture, it wasn't, you know, it was, um, it was a big change. Yeah. You know, even the hoods on the anoraks in the late 80s uh, were small in the sense that, and you know, if you have a small... A, a narrow, you know, uh, hood on the anorak, and if it's very windy and cold, you will freeze a lot. So it's kind of just totally crazy when you looked at all that gear. And to what extent was it? You know, you talk about physical training; it's extremely important in terms of, um, well, the body, but also the equipment. To what extent were you mentally training for a trip like that? I uh, didn't ever do any mental training uh, with a coach or something, but it's uh, when you work hard for something, I'd like we spent two years preparing for the North Pole, then you know you're also mentally extremely you know you know keen to succeed. So I think uh, so that's the best mental training you can have is to prepare well uh, over a longer period because then you get so focused to reach your goal. So that's a, that's the to me, the best preparation is that others use, you know, a coach or a psychologist, whatever, uh, good for them. But I think uh, for me, it has been just hard work. And what about partnerships? 
how important was obviously you've done lots of solo travel and you talk about the importance to you of you know, solo travel but to what extent was your partnership with Borgo important uh that was very important at the time and also this third guy guide uh who had an accident early on had to give up um that was very important um because north pole is complicated to get to so it's uh i benefited a lot from uh Berge, and i also think the other way around uh while the south pole is you know more predictable what you're going to meet and i didn't really need any companions to get to the south pole uh, and and of course it was a, one of the reasons I want to walk to the South Pole alone was, of course, because nobody had done it before. Okay, I was going to ask you about your motivation, and we'll come on to the South Pole in a second. So what was your motivation for going to the North Pole? Why did you want to? Um, As I said, I think we all have this spirit. Uh, And then, you know, if you ask explorers, as you will know, why they go on expeditions they will hardly give you any good answers because explorers they're into how to do things and not why they're doing things so it's um, um, but having said that uh, some obvious reasons um, you know people say they do it for charity they do it for peace they do it for environment they do it for climate blah 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 and of course, all that is true, but that's not a major, f- <laughs> major reason for going on an expedition. So you do definitely do it for uh, egocentric reasons. You do it for, of course, experience nature. I think it's very important. You do it for recognition. Uh, you do it for you know several other reasons. And of course, some people are more motivated for some reasons than others. Uh, and you do it for curiosity because you know we're born to be curious I think most of us so you also do it for curiosity I also think you do it because uh, to freeze the wind uh, uh, the wind the cold uh, the pain you know there are purposes in themselves that's what people have a hard time understanding that it's it's actually important sometimes to 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 really feel nature and uh, that's what most people today lack in the cities and that's also i think one of the reasons people as you know claim to be so sad and lonely and uh, depressed is because they had lost you know touch with nature so if they, you know, if they're closer to nature, if they've, you know, if they felt the wind blowing and saw, you know, hundreds of variations of green uh, in the forest, and if they froze a little bit, you know, life is more worthwhile. Why? Because I think, you know, the only way you can feel, for instance, the pleasure of being warm is that you know how it is to be cold. And if you don't know how it is to be cold, if you've forgotten or just been a little bit chilly every now and then on a soccer game or something, um, you're losing out one of the greatest pleasures in life. And that's it become warm after having been cold or being eat when you have been hungry for a while or, you know, relax when you are totally exhausted from a long walk. Um, That's some of the most, you know, totally super experiences you can have you know and better than most almost any other experience in life but if you somehow maybe without thinking about it choose you know to delete that kind of experiences from your life life is much more much less uh, meaningful that sums it up pretty well i actually so i read the book that i was sent um in a bothy in scotland um, Buffy? What's that? A Buffy, like a mountain hut. Okay. Mm. Old shepherd's hut. Um, yesterday. Mm. So I woke up yesterday morning on the side of a lock in Scotland, read the book for a few hours, and drove back here. And I also read it on the tube as I was coming into town. And the difference in my ability to uh, concentrate and relate to it was, um, well, 
It was extraordinary. And the things I was reading in the Bothy resonated with me so deeply. And on the tube, I found I couldn't concentrate. And I, you know, I was rushing. I was late. Mm. The train was delayed. Um, and I was going to ask, you know, you're a publisher. You're surrounded by books and you're surrounded by exploration, both in different senses. Why do you, why do you think people can't get the same thing out of just reading as they can from going to these places and experiencing them? Because... Um, um we're not only born explorers, but we're also born to explore the world in a physical way. So it's, uh, um, when I looked at my kids, they uh, not only, but mainly they explore the world via their devices, like uh, and, uh, phones and uh, PCs. And uh, that's, you know, that's great, but, but they're missing out a very important dimension that... Uh, Exploration is also about experiencing things physically. And uh, if you stop doing that, um, you know, in one way, it's a basis of being a human. The Homo sapiens is based upon our willingness to explore the world in a physical sense. So, so if you stop, like today, you see a trend that people stop explore, exploring the world in a physical sense, but only do it via screens. Uh, you know, we're still humans, but we're less humans, you know, um, uh, uh, we're less humans than uh, we have been. And if this keeps on going, that, you know, eventually we just sit in a chair and uh, explore and learn everything, it's, and stop, almost stop walking, at least not walking further than, you know, to the car or to the kitchen. Um, we're still humans, but we are not humans as we are known of today. So I think it's, it's uh, some of the basics of being a human being is to walk and, uh, and to explore the world uh, with your body. Okay. Yeah, I agree. And I, I've interviewed everybody that we've interviewed in some way as an explorer in their own senses. They're all very different people. And some people have very strong opinions at the minute, especially in British polar ethics, for example, about what makes someone an explorer. <laughs> and obviously, you know, let's not go there because it's not necessarily that interesting. Uh, and I have to say it's, you know, it's I'm just surprised by how much extra time people have. Sure, I agree. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> so to you, what is exploration? What does that mean when you say we are all explorers? I think it's to me it's about um, uh, curiosity uh, that you really would like to find out you know things that are important for you but maybe or even things that are not that important and it could be a means to something else but it can also be you know in itself important uh, so for me exploration is um, about curiosity and also for me obviously it's about being in uh, nature uh, it's about being present in your own life. It's about not living through other people. Um, yeah, but it's um, but you know it's I haven't really spent much time defining it to a great length. Um, uh, but you know it's it's this whole idea about explorers finding something totally new. Is uh, is uh, is uh, is very naive. It's you know slightly pathetic because exploration has almost always been about rediscoveries. If you look at the great English explorers or uh, the Spanish or Portuguese explorers and also Norwegian explorers, they usually come to a place and someone was greeting them on the beach, and you know so it's so that's you know that's that's a never-ending story. So it's uh, so I mean it's a matter about who discovered whom, and uh, so I think this kind of strict definitions doesn't apply to me no it certainly seems like it doesn't apply to you and especially when i've been reading about the stuff in new york which we definitely like to talk about um because i've done a lot of that myself and we'll hopefully talk a bit about london and what's underneath there as well but um how does walking help with all of the things that you associate with exploration what is walking useful for um, walking is, you know, if you walk, 
Uh, you live longer than other people. Uh, your lungs are working better. Your heart beats, you know, in a better way. Uh, you become more creative. You actually become more intelligent. And, uh, and uh, you feel better, you, you know, you, uh, you're much more surplus. But that's, you know, that's the thing about walking that you can read in the paper every day on the advertisements for uh, vitamin pills. Um, when I sat down to write about walking, I want to write about everything else about walking. And, uh, and of course, walking as so walking from A to B. But uh, but I think you know the most interesting part of walking is to you know to walk as not to achieve uh, uh, something just you know to walk because simply to walk is a great thing. And how often do you just go walking? Uh, I walk every day. Yeah, I I uh, I, uh, I have an office job in Norway, so I walk to the office. Sometimes I take the metro, of course. So I walk to the office, and or I walk back from the office. And in the evenings, I do a walk. I do it, you know, I can walk by myself, but I also do it in a social uh, sense. That uh, instead of sitting in a cafe, sitting at home, we do a walk together. And in the weekends, I do quite long walks on Saturdays and Sundays. And then, of course, in vacations, I do also do long walks. And have you always felt like this about walking? No, uh, I did it when I was a kid because that was, you know, our primary mean of transportation to walk. Um, uh, and then in my teenagers, I was more into partying, having fun. And then uh, around when I was around 20, I started to walk more again. And um, yeah, and I kept on walking. I think, you know, it's, uh, it's, um, it's a good example that some of the greatest pleasures in life are for free. Yeah. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Did it, did it seem strange when you were sailing that you couldn't walk? Yeah, uh, I don't think I missed it that much because, I mean, it's not a religion. It's not like you have to pray five times a day. Uh, uh, so I think when I sail, I did, you know, I did some exercise, push-ups, sit-ups, you know. Uh, but I have to say, um, eventually, after having sailed to Antarctica in 86, 87, I felt for doing some more physical stuff. Because, of course, sailing can be physical, but you're also sitting a lot on your arse, eating peanuts and drinking beer. And uh, eventually it was too much of it. Yeah, sailing sounds good as well, though. Fantastic thing, yeah. Yeah. Um, So can we talk a little bit about Antarctica? Mm -hmm. I'm really intrigued by the idea of... So correct me if I'm wrong, but it was your first big solo Yeah, yeah. And also, I I spent lots of time by myself, but it's also the only... I think the only major solo expedition I've done, uh, or major for sure, but also, so I do lots of cross-country skiing and uh, hiking and walking, etc., by myself. But uh, that's the only kind of major expedition solo. And what inspired you to do it solo? Um, um, it was, uh, you know, it's again many reasons. One reason was because I want to be the first to do it solo. Uh, and you can say that nature should not be about, uh, you know, competitive stuff, but of course it is. Uh, and then, um, such a long time ago, but, you know, then again, to experience nature with someone else is great, but to experience it by yourself is so much stronger. 
somewhat complicated because it's um, uh, you really have to kind of you know you can't live it through other people, but uh, but the experience of nature is is just immaculate when you are by yourself and not having any other uh, input. Uh, it's only you and the ice and the snow and the weather and the horizon. So um, yeah, so that was another major thing. And, um, and um, at the time, I just felt for going on a long sk cross-country skiing trip. And I'm sure some other reasons too, but you know, that was at least some of the reasons. Yeah, it's a pretty good um, reason, just because you wanted to go on a holiday, essentially, if you could. Yeah, just a long break. And I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why many other kind of great explorers kept on going on expeditions was because, you know, they were fed up with the families and want to get away. Yeah. It's not much written about, but that can, you know, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't seem like to miss the families that much. <laughs> we all need solitude, right? Uh, I think so. Uh, maybe not for long, but I think, you know, life is very much about forgetting yourself and living through other people and living through devices and morally it's nothing wrong with it but i think it's sad that you know we have this huge possibility to have a rich life and then you're wasting it with you know like in england maybe people on average spend three hours every day on uh, different media um, you know, if you had three hours a day and you live 30,000 days, which you probably most, most likely do in the UK, so then it's like you spend 90,000 hours. I wouldn't say you waste all of it, but let's say you waste 80% of it. So 72,000 hours. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely insane numbers. When you put it like that, it's insane numbers. Yeah, but it's reality. So, you know, it's, um, it's a matter of fact. You know, Malcolm Gladwell, he famously said, you know, this this outliers, this book that if you spend 10,000 hours on something, you'll become an expert. And people say, how can I get 10,000 hours to learn something? I mean, come on. People say they don't have enough time. I mean, what you really have in life is enough time. So if we put our devices down, we can become an expert at nine things. At least. Maybe Malcolm Gladwell's wrong. Maybe we can do it in eight eight thousand hours. <laughs> yeah, with a bit. Yeah. Okay, I need to pick nine things. Yeah, this fascinating way to think about it. So, you talk about devices, and you know, I know it's a story that you've told a lot before, but um, can you tell me about the radio in Antarctica? <laughs> that one I told many times. <laughs> um, uh, my goal was to be alone and, uh, and uh, not talking to anyone. And this was, of course, prior to internet, etc. So to communicate, you need to have a radio. And, uh, and uh, even with the radio, when you're not, not certain that you're going to be in touch with the outside world because, you know, it was not, it was a bit complicated. But, it's, but anyway, I was forced by my, the airplane company a and I, who flew me uh, in Antarctic, and my sponsor to bring a radio. And this was counter to my ambition, so I left the batteries in the plane. And I, but I still had a radio. And at that time, the radio, I think it was like four and a half kilos, like nine pounds. So it was a heavy thing to drag all the way to, uh, to the South Pole. Did it become symbolic in its own way? No, or was it just a but, you know, you, you can't really throw a radio away, I think, in, in there. So it's kind of, so I had to take it with me. But I couldn't tell, I couldn't tell, there was one guy who was going to call me up on the radio every day, a guy called Cello Vestorvik, a very nice Norwegian guy, good friend. And I couldn't tell him about it because then he would be part of the thing and he, uh, then he could be blamed uh, if something went wrong. And so I couldn't tell him about it. So he called me up every day. <laughs> and so to what extent was it you, you know, obviously you're wanting to be alone, but was any part of it you wanting to not have the safety backup? Yeah, but, you know, I had this Argos transmitter could send, you know, a message to the outside world. And if something went wrong, I could push a button. 
But still, of course, if you fall into a crevasse, if it's not going to be any help. Or if it's a blizzard for three or five days and you freeze like hell, or you know, it's fatal, it's not going to help you. So it's really something you can do if it's good weather uh, to use. Um, I think in retrospect, uh, you know, I might as well not have brought it. Um, but, uh, you know, it has to be risky because if it's not risky, it's... Uh, you could do something else so i think you know it's about minimalizing the risks of course beforehand but you have to accept it's risky but it's still risky with a with a with a, with a satellite phone so it's um but i think um when i when i hear about people doing solo expeditions and they bring a satellite phone uh i think you know it's a misunderstanding i think many people have that it's easier to walk alone for instance to the south pole with a satellite phone and talk with someone every day than not having it i much rather have no radio than having a radio because you know you end up you know you talk call your girlfriend or if a girl you know or whatever kind of friend your partner and you know we talk for a while and then eventually your partner will say the washing machine broke down and it cost 135 pounds and blah 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 blah. you end up talking bullshit so one reason for going expedition is to get away and then you know i think it's punishment to listen to your partner and uh, and uh, and uh, to what's going on in society and you know about politics or whatever they want to talk about and um, yeah so i think it was wise not to bring a radio not not, not to be able to talk on the radio so how do you survive the bullshit and the politics now that you don't go on expedition every year? I think it's very hard here in England <laughs> with Brexit. <laughs> in general, I'm very interested in English politics. I think it's very, I think it's a bit, it's English politics in general, very interesting, I think. But it's, uh, it's not with Brexit. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's very complicated and, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible. Uh, but in, but I have to say, I like politics. I spent time, you know, talking about politics and reading politics but when you're on the ice or up in the mountains it's nice to have a break yeah a full-time break maybe yeah now you yeah i'm sure you understand why i went to scotland for three days yeah yeah. (laughs) i feel sorry for you know the whole situation in 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 uk it's just a very sad story and okay so there are so many directions i want to go with this conversation but with the lots of people that I speak to are really interested in one thing specifically. So they're polar or they're mountaineers or they're a jungle expert or they're into rewilding in the United Kingdom. What is yours? Uh, I don't I have one thing. I think, you know, life is uh, life is uh, too fantastic to have only one thing, but it's uh, but you know it's okay to have one thing because you know the good thing is like uh, uh, Amundsen, Norwegian explorer. He was good at one thing, but after all, he was the best ever in history. So you know it's pretty good. <laughs> I guess it depends whether or not you want to be the best in history or whether you're content just. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So why did you decide to go and walk around the sewers in New York? Um, <laughs> that's kind of a short story. Uh, um, um, I knew this guy, a uh, Spanish immigrant to the States, a psychologist, and he used to spend his uh, Sunday's walks to get underground in New York and find mentally ill people and get them out from the tunnels and uh, for treatment to help them. And it's kind of his way to pay back to American society because they had given him the chance to have a career in the States. And I found that deeply interesting that people living underground, both unfortunately mentally ill people, but also, you know, normal people, not exactly like us, but almost like us. So um, uh, I want to explore that part of the world. And uh, and, uh, then I met Steve Duncan, the urban explorer and historian and photographer, great guy. And to get, uh, and I had the idea about kind of crossing the city in alpine style, 
with a sleeping bag and madras and a backpack and uh, and Steve had the expertise on how it can be done. Do you think you'll do any more urban exploration? Yeah, you know, it's uh, I want to do it afterwards. Um, so I asked Steve about, you know, crossing Paris and try to cross Paris without going above ground at all on the whole on the whole uh, trek. Uh, we were going to do it, but then uh, my girlfriend, I had three kids with, and we split up, which of course was very dramatic. Uh, so I couldn't go, I had to stay home. Uh, but Steve went with some other people and they crossed the whole city, but it had to be above ground for 17 minutes, I think, altogether. So it's still undone. Still undone? Yeah, but it's, 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 a, it's a problem with the river because it's tunnels on the river, but they're not interconnected with the, the other tunnels. Yeah. So, it's, uh, so it's, it's, it's a difficult one. That's a project we should talk about because I, I've been down the catacombs six or seven times, twice to parties, but then also with a team of people who are trying to dig out new yeah. sections of the catacombs. And to get at the river or just yeah. in general? Yeah, and to, cr- to want to do the full crossing. So with lots of the French locals. So they're actually trying. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. but then, um, you know, Oslo has... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a whole scene of people who are. Uh, it's not a big scene. It's quite a limited well, scene. Well, yeah. <laughs> there's a. I uh, think every city now has a little scene. There's right? some. I should probably. I'll tell you about it off microphone because it's probably not okay. But, um, yeah, there's a big party happening. Soon, maybe. <laughs> um, Send my text. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe I get the. I I know some of the guys in Oslo, but it's. Okay. It's. Uh, um, I did a little bit in Oslo, but it's you know it's so much to do. So it's yeah. Um, yeah. So. So maybe my old friend Steve Duncan will come to Oslo, then that would be nice. So you said just a minute ago, oh, that's a story I've told a lot about the the radio. Are there ever obviously you're an author, so you write down all of your stories, but are there stories that you don't tell very often that? maybe you tell to a couple of friends or you've told a few times and they just never crop up in conversation i'm sure um but you know it's also in terms of radio i only talk about it um at interviews i I never hardly ever talk about expeditions in private okay that's interesting and i'm office i never talked about it why is that because you know so much else to talk about and it's not so interesting to me. It's interesting to the others. But now they asked me in my office if I can do a talk for the kids and for them. So sometime in the autumn, I'll do a talk for all employees and their partners and the kids. So I can do it in one go, so I don't have to tell everyone about you know shooting a polar bear. It's, it's enough to do it once. Yeah. So what? And you know, I d- don't do... I did many talks and I haven't done any talks for quite a few years why are you doing i mean obviously you know you've you've written a book why well why do you write books then because i find it uh, very difficult and for instance with silence and walking uh, i felt i had some deeply important to tell i didn't necessarily think i had something new to say about it but i felt i had a different angle and new anecdotes and uh, an uh, original approach to the, those themes. So uh, that's why I wrote those two books, because, uh, you know, I, I, difficult and uh, important. And what do you think is... What do you think is important about the books specifically? Why does it matter and why do people need to I read? Think it's, uh, I think it's important because... Um, as I said earlier, I think it's, I wouldn't say uh, people are wasting their lives, but something kind of close to wasting a part of their lives. And, uh, and I wouldn't say, you know, it's a kind of modern day slavery, but it's something kind of, you know, some similarities but to, 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 to slavery, the people, the way people are living. And uh, so I want to just kind of, you know, write about you know the huge possibilities you have in life to uh to to get to know yourself and to use your own potentials and today you know too few people are using their potentials and and of course aristotle wrote about it 2300 years ago that the meaning of life is to use your own potentials um, and he was right 
and uh, and uh, of course my grandfather his his major goal in life was to survive and make sure that uh, his only son got enough food and clothes to go to school and an education so for him it was you know it was a different life but for me uh, i had the possibility and so do so many more people but still, you know, it's so easy to waste it because when we have to choose between an easy option and a difficult option, we choose the easy option. And that's usually a big mistake. Is it fair to say that what that some of the motivation for your expeditions is you compensating for surviving being easy? Yeah, I think if you live in Norway, uh, not all five million Norwegians, but not most Norwegians would should choose to make their life more difficult than necessary. And in England, you're kind of less spoiled than we are in Norway. Uh, but still, you know, uh, because we have the oil and we're few people and we have, you know, a huge vast country um, with with uh, so 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 many resources. Uh, but still in England, I think it's, you know, all over the world, uh, not everybody, because many people are struggling, but, you know, many, 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 many people should make their lives more difficult than they have to be. And what would your advice be for people who think, okay, I'll make my life more difficult? But, you know, uh, uh, if you had to choose between visiting your mother or your friend who's in the hospital or go to a cafe and drink uh, and have a beer or a cafe latte you should go to the hospital although it's much more tempting to go to that cafe and meet a nice girl and, uh, and if you got to choose between seeing a bullshit tv series or read a good book you should read a good book and if you have to choose between uh, like i'm staying in Battersea and now i'm at the strand so you know, um, uh, I could have driven here to this place. It'd probably take me I don't know 30, 30 40 minutes this morning. I could walk. Took me slightly more than one hour, and so you choose to walk. I wouldn't say it's very difficult, but you know, it's at least you have to move. It's you know, it's. Uh, but interestingly, is when you drive, um, the space around you and the time is narrow, it's getting smaller, shorter. But when you walk, uh, the space around you is opening up and this time is stretching out. So in that sense, you don't save any time by driving. Of course, if you ask a math mathematician, uh, he or she would say that you save time, but time is not uh, linear. So actually, uh, in that sense, I save time by walking this morning. If you really want to make it take a long time and be really hard, there's a really good network of um, Victorian brick sewer yeah. systems through London. Yeah, It'll yeah, take yeah. you all the way to Battersea. There's <laughs> uh, an access point. Have you been point. through? Have you been through there? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a 700 meters away. I checked on Google. Mm -hmm. Whoops. Um, before we came in, 700 meters away, there's a access to Fleet Street sewers. Ah. You just need a high-vis jacket and a hard hat to stop the traffic, and you just climb down. <laughs> and maybe yeah, you need to hold your nose too. You're used to it. Uh, it smells. I mean, I mean, I had three kids. I'm into change uh, diapers. Smells a lot more than just in the sewage. So it's uh, I can survive. <laughs> <laughs> so with the three kids, then you um, you you say they have their heads in their devices a lot, and they live through their devices. What, not advice, but what do you say to them about um? what they could do to make their lives better? Or what do you worry about with them? Get the fuck out of the house. No, I don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... Um, um, I, I think it's very hard to force uh, kids today, you know, to go outdoors and experience it. It's um, You have to lead by example, and you have to tell them about it and show them, and then it has to come from their heart. I think, uh, and I see to my, today my two oldest daughters, they are less connected today than they were. Uh, they're doing you know physical stuff. They're doing outdoors, not not in a great way, but they do it. Uh, they read my book on silence. They kind of saw the life in perspective, 
and the friends read the book and even the parents and uh, I, f- I think they get it although you know they are on to my standard they're too connected but you know they get it while my youngest daughter she's 16 she read a few pages of silence I thought it was a total waste because for her silence is about being bored it's about being let out it's about being sad it's about being lonely so she doesn't get it which i think you know if you're uh, as, a, as a writing the book i think the and happiest group on earth is 15 year old girls so you can't you know that life is complicated and but then you know i think slowly when they're getting older they will you know they will do more outdoors and um and have more silence and more walking in their lives. But already they're walking quite a bit, actually. Do you think the world is changing for the better with that kind of thing? I think the world is changing for the better in almost every sense all the time. That's a, yeah, nice. I was hoping you'd say that, <laughs> but I was worried you wouldn't. Um, okay, last question then, because we're going to run out of time. But um, with everything you've written, I we don't have the time we don't have the opportunity but i would genuinely love to sit here and talk for eight hours about silence and walking and nothing else but why why do you think human beings need adventure because we're born for adventures i guess it's that simple eh? (laughs) i mean it's all about finding your own south poles and then, okay, I'm going to cheat. So I have, I, have a, I, have a, I have a PS question at the end. So Pip, the producer, mm-hmm. told me that when she met you last, um, you asked her what her dreams were. Mm-hmm. Oh, did I ask you? <laughs> That's a bit impolite question. <laughs> but it's okay. I can re- Pip can return the favour through me. So I don't. I we don't really like asking people what they're going to do next because we'd rather talk about what they've done. Um, but what are your dreams? Um, just now I'm finishing a book, editing a book called uh, Philosophy for Polar Explorers, which I wrote some years ago, many years ago actually. Um, so I really hope I will manage to make a, a great book out of it. And that is going to be important for many want to be explorers. Um, Yes, that's that's a dream I have now. Uh, philosophy for polar explorers. It's a kind of contradiction in terms because, as we know, very few explorers do any philosophy. So it's I think uh, I just like the combination. And obviously, it's not philosophy. It's about it's about being philosoph- philosophical about things. So that's a dream. But I also dream about you know actually now I dream about trying to come up with something new in life something that could surprise me and so i don't know what it is but i kind of quite open for uh new angles to my life yeah brilliant thank you very much thank you to some tech.